Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and today for Mina Kim. This hour, as coronavirus cases and hospitalizations surge across California and much of the nation, Governor Gavin Newsom floats the possibility of a second stay-at-home order. Nearly all of the state's residents are already under nightly curfew, and Newsom is warning that if projections hold, the state's intensive care units could be overloaded by mid-December. The sobering news comes as the nation receives good news on the vaccine front, but questions remain about how states will handle distribution. This hour, we'll talk with Dr. Art Rheingold. He's chair of the Division of Epidemiology at UC Berkeley, as well as KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, in today for Mina Kim. California is now in the throes of its worst wave yet of coronavirus cases. Over the past week, the state has recorded each day an average of more than 14,000 new cases and more than 62 deaths. Hospital and ICU beds are filling up and could be dangerously overrun by mid-month. Now state officials are warning of the possibility of another shelter-in-place order similar to what was instituted this spring. Less than two weeks ago, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that most state residents would be subject to a nighttime curfew. In all, California has recorded over 1.2 million cases of this virus since the pandemic began and more than 19,000 deaths. And the spike is coming in the middle of the holiday season, a time when people typically gather. Public health experts are concerned about the weeks ahead, but we have received good news on the vaccine front in recent weeks. And we're going to talk about all of this with two very knowledgeable guests this hour. First, Dr. Art Reingold is the chair of the Division of Epidemiology at UC Berkeley. He's also leading the governor's COVID-19 Scientific Safety Review Workgroup. Dr. Reingold, welcome back to Forum. Thanks. Good to be with you. We appreciate having you. And we also are joined by Leslie McClurg. She is science reporter at KQED. She has been covering this pandemic all year. Leslie, thank you for joining us as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Reingold, I'd like to start with you and have you set the stage a little more. Um, We did relatively well in California earlier this year, flattening the curve and avoiding some of the worst impacts seen in places like New York in the spring. What are you seeing that happened or changed in recent weeks and months that puts us in this unenviable situation where we are worse than ever before? So, So first, I think when we say we, if we're talking about the state of California, obviously we're a very large and diverse state. Right. Um, and, and so we've seen, you know, ebbs and flows in, in different parts of the state at, at different times. Uh, when Southern California, for example, was having more COVID than Northern California, 
et cetera. So, um, but, but I think in general, the answer to your question is that the virus never went away. It was never realistic to think the virus would go away. Um, and I think what we've seen happen in, in recent weeks uh, is a combination of uh, people uh, doing more things, being in contact with more uh, other people, um, perhaps the, the arrival of cooler weather and people being able to be outside less uh, than they were during the summer. Um, and, and so I think it's just a confluence of factors with the virus fundamentally having been with us uh, the entire time period. And now we're seeing increases in transmission. Yeah. And with more infections, we're seeing more ill people, more hospitalized people, et cetera. Well, and as you mentioned, I mean, I think earlier this year, we saw a lot of this really centered in urban centers, more populous counties. But if you look at the map now that the state has put together with these tiers by color code, I mean, most of the state is in the purple tier, Dr. Rangold. I mean, is has something happened in more rural areas that you think, you know, changed the game? Or is it just what you're saying, which is that the virus was there and it waited for an opportunity to really spread? Well, I think it may have taken a little longer for the virus to get to, to more sparsely populated rural counties, just as was the case in some of the states in the upper Midwest, where the, the virus may not have gotten there as quickly as it did to New York or, or Los Angeles or the like. So, so I think the virus may have arrived a little later. Um, people uh, may have taken a little longer to start doing the appropriate testing and, and detecting uh, infected individuals. But it, it was pretty inevitable that that a virus like this was going to make it everywhere sooner or later. Yeah. And we're going to hear later from an official in Alpine County, our tiniest county that doesn't even have a hospital. Leslie McClurg, I want to bring you in here. Um, you have been reporting, as I said, on this all year. And I know in recent days you've had some conversations with healthcare workers. Um, part of the reason the governor um, floated this idea of a potential shelter in place order, which could come as soon as tomorrow, um, is because of the hospital capacity, the, the squeeze we're seeing in ICU beds and, and broader hospital numbers. What are you hearing from healthcare workers? How are they holding up? They're really tired. I would say if, if we're all really tired, you can kind of multiply that many times over for the healthcare workers. So, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, kind of to build on what Dr. Reingold said is it really depends on where in the state in terms of how the hospitals are doing and what they're actually seeing on the ground from what I'm hearing from healthcare workers. But everyone across the board is exhausted that I talked to. I mean, reaching and, and using the words like critical breaking point and, you know, overwhelm moral in, in injury, you know, depression, really pretty dire and much more dire than I would say last spring when I talked to folks and they've really felt like they were, you know, terrified and scared, but, but ready for the challenge and, and, and you know, excited to, to really serve. And now they just feel really, really beat up. And, and not only because it's been so long, but also because they're treating patients who don't believe in the coronavirus, who are coming in clearly sick and not really admitted that they might have COVID until they're about to be intubated, about to be on a ventilator. So they're feeling really beat up emotionally and, and, and just tired from so many long shifts for so many months on end. And I think what I heard was fear last week in terms of, wow, if this is if the numbers keep rising here, we're really going to see it. And now they are seeing it like what I've talked to you know, folks, especially in Los Angeles, are seeing their hospitals fill up again. And it's really hitting at a, at a pretty dire level. 
We're talking about California's coronavirus pandemic with UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Reingold and KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. Dr. Reingold, I mean, you hear Leslie talk about just the enormous strain on our healthcare system and the workers in particular. I mean, do you have any sense? In the spring, we were not just worried about staffing. We were worried about PPE. We were worried about ventilators. It seems like the, the bigger challenge at this point is the staffing issue. Is that is that your understanding as well? that the state as a whole is in reasonable shape in terms of personal protective equipment. But I think you're correct that there really are two major concerns at this point. Uh, if we continue to see an increase in the number of people hospitalized uh, with COVID-19. Um, one of them is hospital bed capacity, um, because you may have noticed an article in the New York Times uh, yesterday, I believe it was, pointing out that California has one of the lowest numbers of hospital beds per, per, per 100,000 population of any state. So we, we don't have a lot of extra hospital beds sitting around unused uh, because they cost money and you know we're trying to reduce healthcare costs. So number one, um, our hospital beds are filling up and projections suggest that they could be pretty full in the next uh, week or two. And there, there really aren't a lot of other places to send people once our hospital beds are full. So that means potentially having to cancel elective uh, surgery and things like that to, to make room for the expected surge in patients. Um, but then, of course, number two, as, as Leslie said, um, um, you know, we have a limited number of healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, and the like, uh, and they're pretty uh, tired. Um, one of my daughters is a frontline health uh, physician in a different state, and she's dealing with COVID patients every day, and, you know, she and her colleagues are just really tired. Yeah. And, and we can't fly in extra people from other states to help us. For example, back in the spring, you know, we had healthcare providers flying from California to New York uh, to help take care of the surge in patients there. But at this point, uh, we really don't have any states with a lot of healthcare providers sitting around. So we're, you know, the state is talking about uh, seeing whether retired healthcare providers or inactive healthcare providers uh, can be brought back to perform s s some functions to help out. Leslie, you know we have to remember. Yeah, we we have to remember that, that the healthcare workers are not only tired from their jobs, but they're also having to weather the pandemic, just like any of the rest of us. You know, I talked to a nurse uh, yesterday at a hospital in Oakland, and he said twenty four nurses on one floor were out because of COVID childcare, so they're taking care of their kids because their kids are not in, in school. And he said two employees at the hospital have died of COVID, so they're getting hit. I think we tend to forget that they are normal people too, weathering the day-to-day -day, and the hospitals just don't have the capacity to bring in more forces like Dr. Reingold said because there aren't any more people to pull from. Yeah. I'm curious if either of you have a sense of what this could mean. And we, we have seen mortality rates decrease as, as, you know, doctors and nurses and the healthcare system has gotten better at treating this virus. But I wonder maybe, uh, Dr. Reingold, to you, if if this surge, you know, as you said, 75% of ICU beds are already occupied. The governor says they could be full by mid-December around the state. Does that also just put a strain on the ability of the healthcare system to respond to sick patients at all? Well, I think it does. I, I don't do uh, clinical care anymore, but, but uh, you know, it's hard to imagine that it, that it wouldn't. Um, as I said, it may be necessary to start canceling uh, elective surgeries and things mm -hmm. like that, which has enormous financial 
repercussions for, for these institutions. You know, I suppose one piece of good news so far uh, is that uh, we really aren't seeing much influenza, uh, even though it's the beginning of influenza season. And, and so perhaps uh, that's uh, at least in part a result of all the masking and social distancing we're doing. But, but uh, we were concerned that we would have a, a, a twindemic, if you will, of influenza and COVID-19. And, and, and so far, influenza hasn't arrived as far as I uh, understand the data here in California. Yeah. I mean, do we have a sense of whether, I mean, Leslie, I know the, the nurses and doctors you're talking to could be anywhere in the state, but it does seem like rural communities um, could possibly really be be hit hard as well. I mean, are, are they talking about that problem, that you can't transfer patients um, into bigger centers because they're, they're getting full too? I know in San Francisco, we're concerned about hitting limits. And this is a city with, with so many hospitals. Exactly. I mean, that's the problem is that rural facilities typically depend on urban centers to carry the weight. For example, I talked to an ER doc up in Tahoe yesterday, and he was saying, you know, usually we would just go down to Sacramento and take our patients there if we get overwhelmed or if we run out of ICU beds or if we don't have the staff to take care of a particular, you know, special special need. But right now that isn't possible because Sacramento is getting overwhelmed. I'm going to talk to a doctor there today and they don't have the capacity to take in folks from rural hospitals. And so if you're in a place that may not just simply not have the equipment or the expertise to treat the problem, well, you're in a dire situation, literally. Seriously, we are talking about coronavirus, California's coronavirus pandemic with UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Rheingold and KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. What questions do you have? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim, and we are talking about California's coronavirus pandemic. Um, I want to bring in uh, Nicole Williamson. She is the County Health and Human Services Director in Alpine County, California's smallest county. Um, Nicole Williamson, we really appreciate you joining us today. Morning. Thank you for having me. So we were talking at the top about how this virus really spared a lot of smaller counties at the beginning, but we're seeing rates spike really everywhere. Can you just give us an update of where things down in Alpine County and how that compares to even just a few weeks or a month ago? Uh, of course. So uh, 
as you said, Alpine County is the smallest county in California population wise. We have approximately 1,100 residents. And until late October, we only had three total COVID cases since the pandemic began. Since October 23rd, we have had 49 cases develop. Um, so we are up to 52 cases total since the pandemic began. And so, as you said, we were spared early in the pandemic, but recently our numbers have um, grown greatly. We move very quickly from the yellow tier into the orange tier, and now we're in the red tier and hoping to avoid the purple tier, but we have just had uh, an outbreak since late October. I mean, I know it's hard to gauge, but do you have any sense of what is driving that? gatherings in people's homes. People uh, originally our three cases that we had earlier in the year obtained the virus all outside of the county and it was easy uh, easy for us to determine exactly where they obtained it. But with our most recent outbreak it appears as though it is um, being spread from household to household by the the very gatherings that uh, the governor and public health officials are asking people to avoid, which is gatherings in households. What's your sense of the kind of politics there? I mean, do you feel that the residents are listening as you appeal to them to avoid those types of gathering? I know that, you know, this, this virus has become very politicized across the nation. Yeah, we have a lot of people that are following the the guidelines to stay home and then others that um, are not. And it's been, um, you know, our outbreak has shown that um, if people don't stay in their own homes and congregate in other people's homes with people in other households, that it's going to spread very rapidly. Um you mentioned the population is about 11,000 there. I believe there are no hospitals in Alpine County. Um, the And the hospital capacity issue is really, I think, one of the things weighing most heavily on folks like yourself and, and state health officials. What are the contingency plans if numbers keep rising? And, and how are folks in your county being treated now, given, um, you know, it's it's a pretty big county geographically, even if there aren't a lot of people there? Yeah, sorry, I would like to correct you and say 1,100, 1,100, sorry. Yeah, we're that small. (laughs) That small. (laughs) That small. Um, So yeah, we do not have a hospital in the county. And in fact, our health department is the only medical provider in the entire county. We have been providing COVID testing five days a week in the health department. And then we have three mobile sites that are run by Verily, which has been contracted by uh, California Department of Public Health to perform testing. So we are doing really well on testing. As far as uh, treatment, we've had two uh, hospitalizations. Obviously, both of those have occurred outside of the county. So if people live on the eastern slope of the county, they um, usually seek medical services uh, beyond what we can provide in either Carson Valley, Nevada, or in South Lake Tahoe. And if uh, people on the western slope of the county, uh, which is the Bear Valley Ski mm-hmm. Resort area and the town of Bear Valley, seek services um, either in other you know, rural counties like Tuolumne or Calaveras or Amador, or if they become that ill, they need to seek 
services either in Stockton or Modesto. So people do have to travel uh, distances uh, often if they become ill or require hospitalization. Is this something that's worrying you? Are you, I mean, I know we have trajectories and they're all, you know, their projections, their guesses in terms of rates and hospitalizations. But as you look toward the next few weeks, I mean, are you concerned about the ability for the, you know, for folks in Alpine County to get care? I'm, I am concerned. We've seen hospitalization rates obviously go up. And even though, you know, we don't have a hospital, you know, we, we follow the hospitalization rates in our neighboring counties because we know that's where our, um, our residents go to seek service. So, you know, as those hospitals become overwhelmed, you know, there's less places for our residents to be able to go. It is quite worrying. I'm also starting to worry about, um, you know, our capacity in the health department as the smallest county to continue testing. And we're starting to get prepared uh, for, for vaccinations and gear up our vaccination plan for uh, when we need to be able to provide mass vaccinations to our residents. Yeah, a whole, a whole nother wrinkle to this. We're going to get to that later in the hour. Before I let you go, no, go Nicole Williamson, I'm just curious um, what you're asking for in terms of help from the federal government or state at this point. Um, what are you looking for, for for assistance outside of the county borders? Um, at this time, we are just thankful that the state continued to uh, their contract with Verily that is providing the drive through mobile testing with our support, we weren't confident that contract was going to continue and some of the options that were available to us through the state were not going to work for us. And so right now we're just thankful that that's still available. And um, that's really what we needed at this time was for this testing to, to continue and to, to make sure that we continue to get the testing supplies that we, we need. All right, that's Nicole Williamson, Health and Human Services Director of Alpine County, 1,100 resident strong. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Good luck. We are talking about California's coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we have UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Reingold here, along with KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Uh, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can also email questions to forum at kqed.org. And we do have a few comments from social media here. Uh, Irvi tweets that we should California should definitely impose a second state at home order and that Speaker Nancy Pelosi should make sure Congress provides aid so people and businesses don't go bankrupt. She says, give folks cash and time to stock up so all people can shelter in place. Uh, Beth writes that scientists who create these inconsistent and confusing COVID-19 rules seem to ignore the real world fact that humans are social animals, drug, alcohol, depression, and even suicide rates have skyrocketed this year because of the lack of interactions with other humans. Um, you know, I want to go to, to both our guests on these points. I mean, Dr. Rangold, you heard this comment um, from Nicole Williamson about the fact that gatherings is what she believes are really driving the rates, even in a tiny county like that. We did see the governor issue a, a nighttime curfew a few weeks ago. Um, I'm hearing that, you know, as soon as tomorrow, we might get a, a new shelter in place order. Uh, what... 
What can public health officials do better at this moment? I mean, it does feel like the messaging has been mixed if you look at it from the, you know, the, the federal government down, but has been relatively consistent here in California. So I do think the messaging uh, and and the um, the behaviors that leaders model are important uh, in, in helping people understand and perhaps be motivated to, to change their behaviors uh, during this uh, pandemic. You know, one, one of the problems, of course, uh, is that many people do become infected and, and don't become sick. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively small proportion who are going to end up in the hospital or in the intensive care unit or dying. And, and so I think many people have come to believe that this virus is not very important. It's more of a nuisance. It's like the common cold. And, and we are overreacting. And, and, and that the result of that are the, the problems that alluded to by the second person you quoted uh, with regard to mental health uh, conditions and the like. Um, so, so I think it is a difficult message to get across about why we want to uh, reduce transmission of this virus uh, while we wait for what we think will be the, the soon arrival of, of a vaccine that's going to or vaccines that will help us out of this uh, in order to, to really try and prevent the kind of overwhelming of our healthcare system that, that we are now seeing. That's what I think is what we're trying to accomplish, at least over the coming weeks. Yeah. And of course, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but we have seen a lot of headlines in recent weeks about folks from the governor down to San Francisco Mayor London Breed dining out in situations with more than one household. Uh, Mayor Sam, Le- Sam Licardo down in San Jose just acknowledged that he had uh, gathered outside with family on Thanksgiving with multiple households. So, I mean, Leslie, people are getting fatigued. Uh, I, I, what, I, I don't know what kind of um, sense you have, but if the governor does issue another shelter-in-place order, we're hearing that it would be a little bit different from the spring in terms of possibly county by county, really tied to the tiers we're talking about in terms of infection rates and other challenges. Um, I mean, do you think that kind of flexibility is going, could potentially help? I mean, what we saw in the spring, right, was a real flattening of the curve because the state essentially shut down across the board. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's such an interesting line to try to walk. And how do you convince people that this is serious and how do you take care of the ripple effects, right? I mean, I mean I've covered a lot of the, what they call like a syndemic, you know, effects of what that, what one of your listeners pointed out of the suicide of kids' mental health of, you know, I, social isolation and the health effects of, of that are, are incredibly real and incredibly dire. And I would argue that the people, the families every single day that are losing loved ones, the 62 people that are dying every day would argue that COVID-19 is also very serious and that taking care of stopping the virus should also be our priority. And so I really think that our officials need more credit, honestly, in terms of trying to thread that needle. And I think, you know, California is trying to use some of the lessons. You know, Dr. Galli came forward on Monday saying, like, we will do it differently this time. We know we can do it for shorter periods of time and have a bigger impact. You know, hopefully we won't just shut down and then, you know, sort of hope. So they do have more data. But one thing that I have learned covering this thing for the last year is that 
it is a beast that we don't know much about and we are learning as fast as we can and how to stop it. We are also learning that as fast as we can. And there are costs on each side and they are real and they are painful. And I think that if you care about death and taking care of other people in terms of our healthcare workers, et cetera, that we have to reserve our social gatherings for a little bit longer. We have the light at the end of the tunnel. And if we can get there, if we can sit tight for a little longer, we can get back to normal and not lose people along the way. Well, we are going to talk in our uh, final segment more about the vaccine, but we do have a caller, Henry, who does have a vaccine question now. And I think that that's the light at the end of the tunnel you're referring to, Leslie. Uh, Henry, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you. I wondered if the vaccines will have any effect on people who've already been infected or, you know, asymptomatic or have already gone through a small bout or a larger bout of um, COVID. But there, um, will the vaccine have any effect on them? All right. Dr. Rangold, what's your sense? I know there's a lot of questions outstanding about the, a lot about the vaccine. So, so that's a great question. There are many great questions. Um, the, the, you know, the, the answer is that um, the the the, uh, the recommendations that will be forthcoming about the use of the vaccine do not recommend that people undergo any kind of blood testing to see if they have antibodies or the like before deciding whether someone should be vaccinated. We don't know if the vaccine would have uh, an additional effect in terms of protection in someone who's already been infected. But the recommendation will be that if you have had documented COVID. Uh, infection in, in the prior three months uh, that you not be vaccinated, not not because we're worried about the safety of the vaccine, uh, but because we think you probably have a relative degree of immunity for at least several months following a COVID uh, infection. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, we also have a few listener comments about these questions about surge capacity and hospital and ICU beds. Uh, one listener writes, I'm wondering why are we are not calling back the hospital ships and reopening places like Levi Stadium in order to increase capacity? Another listener asks, hearing about these hospital workers, I'm wondering, where's the military? It seems like they could have the human and material resources we need right now. Um, I, Leslie, is this something you've been following? I know the governor's talked about the ability to stand up temporarily temporary uh, treatment centers if necessary. You know, I think it is a real possibility. And I have heard from officials that pop-up tents will be used, you know, if we get to that point for sure. And I think that the question about the military, you know, just this morning, I heard a story on NPR this morning that the National Guard has been used more than ever this year in in history, and and that they have been put to use uh, on many fronts, and that they are really good at certain things. They are not necessarily really good at acute medical care. Um, so whether or not they will be used or brought in again and in what capacity, you know, is to be determined. But it, but it sounds like they they will be called upon and, and they are tired as well because they've had a rough year. Yeah. A few minutes left in this segment. Dr. Reingold, I mean, I think we haven't touched on a lot of, on this potential um, for another shelter in place order. I just want to get your thoughts on whether you think that's necessary um, and if you think the curfew has had any effect at all. Well, I don't know whether the curfew has had any effect. And, you know, I'm a little bit doubtful that, that that's really made a, a big difference. But but if it's if it has reduced people congregating uh, in, in, in various places, then I suppose it, it's certainly possible that it could. Uh, you know, in terms of what additional steps to take, I think we really, um, uh, if we can be more, more precise and, and surgical, um, I think that's great. But 
you know, and one good example of that would be, you know, the various counties in the in the Bay Area uh, have worked together to try and and have fairly similar approaches because we we don't have border guards. You can easily travel from one county to another. So I think consistency within an area is is helpful. But but you know, it, it's not going to be easy uh, to fine tune. Uh, further restrictions, uh, although I, I think it's worth the effort. All right. We have a call, uh, Trish and Sebastopol. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. Um, uh, I don't mean to be unkind, but I'm just wondering if we shouldn't think about changing the narrative of describing us, the public, as fatigued or tired and maybe refer to us as selfish. <laughs> I just think that you know there's a lot of a lot of the activities have been not considering the healthcare workers or the community or even our neighbors, but thinking of ourselves. All right, so, so, yeah, jump in. So, so, so if I might jump in, I mean, I, you know, I, I understand that that point of view. I, I I think we do need to point out that 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 beyond the question of fatigue. Uh, there's also the very real problem of, of the fact that many of our members of our community, particularly those low income groups, really uh, are, have limited options uh, when it comes to everything from their work environment uh, to uh, how to deal with their kids not being in school that, that you know, a Berkeley professor can handle fairly easily. But, 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 but a lot of lower income people really don't have the options. And so it may not be so much being selfish is, is really having very, very limited opportunities to, to change your life in a, in a dramatic way. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a short break. We're talking about California's coronavirus pandemic with UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Reingold and KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. We'll be joined by San Diego supervisor Nathan Fletcher after the break. Tell us what questions you have. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Marisa Lagos, and today for Mina Kim, stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos here in uh, Fermina Kim today. We're talking about California's coronavirus pandemic with UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Reingold and KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. Leslie, when we left off, uh, Dr. Reingold was making the excellent point that some people are probably being selfish and doing things they shouldn't, but others are forced to go to work um, to be those essential workers we're all relying on. And many of them will continue to even if there is another shelter in place order. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of how we can, you know, maybe differentiate between folks making sort of personal decisions around, you know, social behavior versus the necessity of working and keeping our economy going. 
I think it's a really tricky line. And I think the more that we can all, you know, kind of to speak to what the, the caller was saying, are we fatigued or are we selfish? I think the more that we can embody the fact that we are all in this together and all the decisions we make, like if we are also taking care of those essential workers, like what Dr. Rangel was talking about, those workers that have to be out on the front lines, the more that we can keep the virus down, we are taking care of them. We are taking care of our healthcare workers. We're taking care of our care of our own families. And granted, at a huge cost in terms of potential the social interaction that we usually have that is incredibly important for our mental health. Um, you know, I had a, an older senior woman say to me recently, and I thought it was so just like hit the nail on the head. She just said, you know, if you wear a mask, you basically say to me that you care about me. Is you're not only caring about yourself, it's like you're saying to the world, like, I care about everyone else. And by not wearing a mask, you're sort of saying that you don't necessarily care about the rest of us and how this virus moves between us. And so I think it's a tricky balance, but hopefully, you know, we can kind of come from that place of caring for others as we navigate, you know, this pretty challenging time. Yeah, so much to unpack about the psychology of this from masks to uh, to behavior. I want to bring in now Nathan Fletcher. He is San Diego County Supervisor for District 4 down there and co-chair of the Board of Supervisors COVID-19 Task Force. Supervisor Fletcher, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So tell us quickly, just how are things in San Diego County? How do they compare to where they were a month or two ago? Well, things are very concerning. We've had a significant jump in our cases. We were averaging at our at our best point in recent history, you know, three to 400 cases per day. We've now jumped to well over 1,500 cases per day. We've had a tripling of our hospitalizations. Um, and we're really concerned about what is coming ahead. Our increase in cases has been much recent. And we know there's a, there's a three-week lag between increase in cases and increase in hospitalizations. And then we're having the same challenges everyone's having of uh, I don't know if it's fatigue or just a, a set-in defiance, a segment of the population uh, that is, is just not going to believe fact or science or peer-reviewed studies uh, that have kind of embraced this notion that it's a hoax. And that's a, that's a notion in San Diego that it's often perpetuated and enhanced by elected officials who have the same job I have. And so it's made it very challenging uh, to create a sense of public unity uh, in response to uh, to COVID. And so I think the challenges we see across the country, we're certainly facing here in San Diego as well. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the politics with you, um, because I think that uh, San Diego, I, I grew up there, full disclosure, it's, it's, a, it's a county that's changed. It has become more blue, but it, but still has a, a deep military presence, um, still has a real sort of mixture of parties, even if they're nonpartisan offices on county and, and, and city um you know, elected officials, and I know the mayor down there has pushed back against some of Newsom's, uh, you know, regulations. Um, you are on this COVID-19 task force. I mean, what is your sense in terms of, is this a vocal minority of people pushing back? Or are you hearing this also from, you know, the general public more? Well, I think, look, I'm, I'm a proud Democrat, and we can have philosophical, ideological value-based differences with our, our Republicans. Um, around a lot of issues, you know, we, we can debate, you know, who should be a citizen for how long or what gun you should have or how long you should wait to get it. But when it comes to COVID, if there was ever a moment uh, where we just needed to work the problem, uh, this was that moment. If there was ever a time where whether your primary focus is saving lives of the most vulnerable or your primary focus is keeping businesses open, we would do the exact same things. Uh, we would wear the mask, physically distance, avoid large indoor gatherings. 
and take responsible targeted uh, action in the highest risk settings. But unfortunately, it's just not a time in our history where, where that is likely to happen. And so whether it is um, colleagues of mine bringing on discredited uh, quote unquote scientists to spread conspiracy theorists, I mean, how unfortunate is it when the county public health doctors have to go on the record to fact check a county supervisor and say the things they are saying are factually untrue, um, or whether it's a mayor who, who I think is more interested in positioning against Governor Newsom for a future run uh, than helping us respond effectively to the crisis. All of these things contribute to a situation where you at times have a public that is confused. They see erratic and unstable messaging from the president. Uh, they see that same nature picked up by local officials. And in some ways, you can't fault the individuals who simply look at mixed messaging from their elected officials and are confused as to what they should do. And so we continue to go out every day. We fight, we push, we lead. Uh, our COVID subcommittee is bipartisan. It's myself and Supervisor Greg Cox, and, and we continue to implore. And I think that the overwhelming majority of the public is doing the right things. But the unfortunate reality is that with a pandemic that is, is as transmissible as COVID, uh, it only takes a small number of people to not do that, to get you in a situation where you're triggering exponential growth and where you threaten the integrity of your healthcare system. Yeah. So um, as I've mentioned earlier in the hour, we are anticipating that the governor could, as soon as tomorrow, issue a new shelter in place order. Um, are you in support of that that type of step at this moment? Um, I would be in support of it. I, I think I think the governor um, has has had an incredibly difficult job and, and a very challenging one. And I think one of the biggest problems with COVID is that you have to take action before it is painfully obvious that you need to take action. And, you know, this is the nature. A lot of public health issues, you, you have trouble gaining traction around prevention, uh, taking action before you need to. But, you know, the, the example that I, I give a lot is if, if you spend time outdoors and hiking, you know, if you wait until you're thirsty to drink, you're dehydrated. And if you wait until your hospitals are overwhelmed to take action, it's too late. And given the delay between uh, a event that causes transmission uh, you know, you're looking at seven to 10, 12 days later before you know it's a case. Then once you know it's a case, you're looking at 21 to 24 days before you're likely to see hospitalizations on average and then death being after that. The simple fact is you have to take action early before it's obvious you do in order to avert that. And I, I think the situation is concerning. And, and you know, obviously, I think it would be regional. Uh, I think there has to be some consideration of the condition of each county and their hospital system capacity and where they are. Um, and I think that they've done a good job with that, with the tiered system. And if, you know, if we need to come in one more time while we wait for a vaccine and tighten up, protect life, get in a better position, then, then I think that that's something that would be appropriate. All right. That's San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Supervisor Fletcher, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I want to read a few comments. Marsha writes that we should actually enforce properly wearing masks and maintaining social distance while shopping at essential businesses. The number of people who keep their mask under their nose or stand less than six feet apart is ridiculous. It's like a new form of man spreading. Um, and Aparna says in the summer and early fall, the message was that outdoor gatherings is the least risky behavior. With the surge, is it still okay to meet one to two families outside for a walk or hike? It's unclear if that is safe or risky at this point. Dr. Reingold, what are your thoughts on that? So, uh, you know, I think all of the evidence is that for this virus, the overwhelming majority of transmission occurs indoors, um, particularly uh, in poorly ventilated areas. So, so is there no risk associated with, the, with, with being outdoors? No, but the risk is pretty low. So if you want to take a walk with somebody and stay, you know, a few feet apart while you're walking, uh, you know, I think you're really taking on very, very little 
risk. If you want to sit, uh, you know, some distance apart from each other at a picnic table and talk again, I think the risk outdoors is really quite low because of the dilution of any virus that, that might get into the air. So, so it's not risk-free, but it's much lower than the risk of indoors. I really appreciate how clear that guidance was, Doctor. I feel like sometimes we hedge so much, it's hard for people to make sense of this. Um, I do want to switch gears because, as I mentioned at the top, you are chair of the Governor's Scientific Advisory Committee, which was charged with independently reviewing any vaccine approved by the FDA. Um, We saw just today that uh, Britain, the UK, actually approved the Pfizer vaccine. Um, And we know that uh, theirs and Moderna um, are in in the final stages um, in, in the United States. Can you talk a little bit just about how your work is progressing and, and what why it's necessary for California to have this group? Well, this is a, an extremely interesting and somewhat challenging uh, issue. Uh, you know, historically, uh, while we have uh, separate states have their own public health laws, we, we generally have relied on the federal government, the FDA and, and the CDC uh, to give us advice and, and to regulate vaccines and drugs. And, and, and I want to start by saying that, that I, I actually, despite perhaps the obvious political nature of the approval of hydroxychloroquine by FDA last spring, um, that I actually have strong faith uh, in, in the FDA scientists and the advisory committees advising FDA and CDC about COVID vaccines. So, so I personally believe that they will thoroughly review the data and, 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 and base decisions on, on the science, not on the politics. Now, having said that, um, clearly many people um, have become concerned about whether there's been political interference uh, in these processes or not. And so I think the governor uh, basically is hopeful that if, if a group of experts here in California, and we're, we are truly uh, uh, privileged to have some of the world's leading vaccine experts here in California on, on our committee, including from San Diego and Los Angeles and the Bay Area and, and elsewhere, and we've been joined by colleagues from the states of Washington, Nevada, and Oregon, uh, we're hopeful that we can very expeditiously uh, weigh in um, and 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 uh, and and uh, in the assumption that, that we're in agreement with our colleagues at the federal level, that perhaps that will give an additional level of reassurance to people, and, and that we can achieve a high level of coverage with these vaccines very soon after they are available. I mean, are you, how quickly are you seeing data from CDC and FDA? And and you said quickly. I mean, how long do you think the governor said just on Monday that California could receive as many as 327,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine by mid-month? I assume that your weighing in would have to happen before that, correct? Well, no. The, the doses can be shipped as soon as the FDA issues an emergency use authorization or licensure. And for the Pfizer vaccine, uh, that was scheduled to occur potentially on the 14th of December, is my understanding. Uh, apparently, the commissioner of FDA was called to the White House yesterday to see if that process could be speeded up. Um, but on the assumption that it goes on, on schedule, um, the, the vaccines can be shipped. Uh, as soon as the FDA uh, issues an approval, uh, the ACIP of CDC is expected to meet and, and, and issue its guidance the next day. Uh, we are certainly already looking at all the available data from the early phases of the studies. Uh, we will have access to the phase three data 
more or less immediately, and, and we don't expect to delay the process. So the vaccines can arrive and, and be distributed um, uh, and, and be administered quite quickly after that federal approval. Got it. You're listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. We're talking about California's coronavirus pandemic with UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Reingold and KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. Dr. Reingold, earlier we we hit on this briefly about the idea that it's possible that folks who just had COVID-19 or were diagnosed may have to wait uh, to get the vaccine. But can we talk a little bit more about how the state is um approaching the question of priority. I mean, we know that there's federal guidelines just being issued this week. Uh, there are state guidelines. Um, I mean, who do you expect to kind of be first in line, given we have about 2.4 million healthcare workers in California? As we said, the first uh, doses will be a couple hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand. So uh, many experts have weighed in on this. The National Academy Committee wrote a report that I was uh, a member of, of, of that committee. As you said, the federal government, ACIP, is issuing guidelines. And, and fundamentally, these guidelines will help states like California, uh, which will in turn provide guidance to counties and, and to hospitals. Um, and uh, so, um, and you may see some differences b- between what the U.S. does compared to what Britain does for example. But I think generally there's agreement uh, that our frontline uh, healthcare workers, including uh, people who are changing the beds and mopping the floors and and potentially exposed in these settings, uh, are are going to be at the very highest priority, uh, together with people who work in long-term care facilities and and people residing in long-term care facilities. So I I think there's general agreement in the United States that those are going to be the top priority. Um, but, but if a hospital doesn't have enough numbers of doses for all of its healthcare providers, then clearly they're going to have to decide who the highest priority are. If we have active healthcare providers who are over 65, for example, or have underlying illnesses, they may be at the front of the line compared to younger, healthier healthcare providers. I mean, there's going to have to be uh, basically some sub-priority uh, um, setting even within these groups. And, and after that, we get into very complicated issues uh, relating to uh, frontline workers, uh, people in public security, uh, 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 people keeping our, our, our transit running and our food stores supplied, but also people incarcerated. Um, so so there are, it's a pretty complicated mix that has to be addressed. Um. We have a question, a questioner from a listener, Dr. Reingold, asking, will the vaccine need to be administered regularly? Do we know yet or are waiting for more data? I assume this person means more than once, which I think both vaccines would need two doses, right? Well, no, but I think what the listener probably means is that you're correct that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are intended to be a two-dose schedule. Oh, right. uh, if and when uh, some of the other vaccines are licensed, some of them are a one-dose schedule. But I think what the listener means is, will they protect you for life? Uh, will you need an annual uh, shot uh, the same way we do for flu? And the quick answer is we simply can't know yet. So stay tuned. We just don't know how long it will last. Okay. Um, another thing I think we've been talking about really since this pandemic started and the the, the you know possibility of a vaccine is, is vaccine, vaccine skepticism, concern about risk. We have a listener asking if, if Dr. Reinkold can characterize what the risks of the new vaccines would likely be. And I would just add on and, and how you think the public health officials should be communicating, you know, to convince people that this is safe. 
so, so I think, you know, first of all, we have a backdrop of people who are skeptical about vaccines uh, rather than the, the notion that somehow natural infection is a better uh, route to go. Um, but, but, but I think um, beyond that, we, we clearly have people who have seen uh, something called Operation Warp Speed uh, and, and, and going from a sequence of a virus to having uh, vaccines licensed in less than a year. And, and, and so a time frame that really uh, can, might give you pause. Um, I would point out that really what was accelerated in that was the science that led up to the clinical studies. The clinical studies themselves uh, have really uh, been going on in a pretty standard fashion. Um, and I'm pretty confident that the safety data we have uh, will help us know uh, that that these vaccines are, are you know what their safety characteristics are, uh, you know people raise the question of long term safety. Uh, how do we know that if you give me a vaccine today, it won't give do something terrible to me five years from now? Well, I would simply point out that we have never known that about any vaccine at any time when we began giving it to large numbers of people. It's an unrealistic right. expectation, but I do expect we will have good short term safety data. Uh, and that the FDA will look at those and we will look at those carefully uh, before giving the vaccine to large numbers of people. That was UC Berkeley's Dr. Art Rheingold. He is a chair of the Governor's Scientific Advisory Committee as well as an epidemiologist at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much for your time today, doctor. Happy to join you. Also, thanks to KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. Leslie, we really appreciate you. Thank you. Take care. We spoke earlier with Nicole Williamson, Health and Human Services Director of Alpine County, as well as San Diego Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Thanks to all of our guests today. I'm Marisa Lagos. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.